to the reader. This is a tale of witchcraft, told as a simple family of 17th century New England might have believed it to be. All of their folkloric and religious beliefs in this film are true. It was inspired by various folk tales, fairy tales and recorded accounts of historical witches and possessions from New England and Western Europe before the Salem outbreak in 1692. Much of the dialogue, in fact, comes directly from these sources. In order to effectively depict this world in which ordinary people understood supernatural occurrences to be an expected part of life, it is essential that all aspects of the film to be carried out with utter naturalism. The characters must appear as real farmers, not actors with dirty faces. Even the supernatural elements must be photographed as realistically as possible. Yet, with all this authenticity and realism, it is still a folktale, a dream, a nightmare from the past. Hello, and welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror, film and feminism. In this first series, we're bringing special guests to dive into film and TV shows with witchcraft at the heart of them. I'm Anna, co-founder of The Final Girls and your podcast host. In this episode, we'll be discussing Robert Eggers' The Witch, also known as The Witch, a New England folktale. With his newest film, The Lighthouse, ending up on quite a lot of best of the year lists, it's only fitting that we discuss his debut feature on this podcast. Set in 1630s New England, English settler William and his family, that's his wife Catherine and five children, are banished from a Puritan colony over a religious dispute. William and Catherine try to lead a devout Christian life on an isolated and borderline barren farm. When their newborn son mysteriously disappears and their crops start failing, the family begins to turn on one another. Rumors of a witch in the woods are plenty, tensions rise high, and figures start being pointing at their eldest daughter, Thomason. I'm joined in this episode by filmmaker Chloe Wicks, writer-director of short films such as The Weird, Pucker, and Cubicle, amongst others. She's definitely a name to watch in the horror scene. As always, a warning, we go deep on the film, so if you haven't seen The Witch yet, get on it. Mostly because it's an amazing film that rewards multiple viewings, but also because we spoil it pretty heavily from about midway through the episode. So hopefully the conversation will encourage you to seek out the film. Thank you so much for A, picking this film and B, coming over on the full moon. It is a full moon. I'm excited about it. Okay, so it's a perfectly witchy afternoon to record an episode about the witch. It is. Thanks for having me. So just to kick off, can can you talk a little bit about when you first saw the film and what is your relationship to Robert Eggers, the witch? So I first saw the film in... October 2015 at London Film Festival and it was actually the very first proper horror film I'd ever really seen and I have a very very low scare threshold and um, yeah I've been kind of raised on a diet of um, you know Austin and Bronte and you know rom-coms which was great and um, I have no regrets about that but um, yeah it was the first ever horror film I saw and it had such an effect on me Um, and yeah, I was... can't believe that this was the first horror film you saw. I know, I know. So what about it, considering that you had never kind of been attracted to horror films before, which I find astounding considering the films of yours that I've seen, yeah. which are either directly horror films or um, really skirting around yeah. the boundary between horror and a drama. But what about The Witch attracted you? I think it was the fact that 
the experience of watching a horror film and specifically The Witch is is so, so visceral um, and you feel completely outside of your head. You come out of the cinema forgetting, you know, what you have for lunch, what you were thinking about before, the anxieties of before. You feel so immersed in in, in the experience and the feelings um, throughout the film. Um, and I think certainly in The Witch that that it, it's so it's so immersive as an experience because we're so immersed in that era um, and in this family's life. What did you make of it on that first viewing and how has that opinion on the film changed? You know, it's it's been four years since it came out and Robert Eggers has made another feature film that's also been really critically acclaimed and is coming out in a few months. But how has your relationship with the film evolved? since you've been watching it several times, I imagine, or at least at least another time for this. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think what's great is I'm actually really glad that it was my first horror experience because I think that it's, it's so authentic and it feels like it functions on several levels. Um, and actually, the more that I watch it, the, the more I think that's kind of its genius, which is that on the one hand, it's it's functioning as a kind of um, study of paranoia, you know, crucible-esque kind of finger pointing. Um, there's an element of hysteria to it, you know, which we might assume is not real. But then we're also presented with an absolutely real witch. So it's kind of navigating that line between, you know, very real fears of witches in dark woods eating our babies and also um, kind of psychological breakdown. So in that, in that sense, it feels like it functions on two different levels and it kind of combines the sort of Rosemary's Baby's psychological breakdown with a kind of more uh, body horror, you know, real horror aesthetic. Um, and I think that feels brilliant and really exciting. Um, and I think why it rewards kind of multiple viewings. What did you think about the the types of witches that it presents? Because, you know, it's titled the witch but there's actually several that appear throughout the film yeah i think it's interesting how it kind of examines sort of all the archetypes that we might associate with the witch there's kind of the hag or the crone kind of archetype you know woman the, the woman in the woods who's sort of thin but also fleshy and kind of sinewy and um very you know, seductive yeah, yeah and um and also dressed the kind of red cape yes which also harkens back to like the little red riding hood but also is you know instantly quite a an, an attractive and seductive color completely yeah. and i think it's kind of the only really strong color in the film mm. everything else is very muted and yeah. um kind of you know natural colors yeah so so there's the sort of hag figure um and then there's the kind of temptress um and and then there's also the the uh, the animals and and the form that the witch seems to take you know in the hair and um i think in the raven as well i mean that's kind of open to interpretation mm -hmm. um so yeah it's kind of dealing with all three of those archetypes and and then, of course, it, asking the question, is Thomasin the kind of fourth witch? Yeah, to what degree is she the witch of the title? Mm. Um, or is that the scary witch in the woods? How do you think it plays with that ambiguity around Thomasin's character in particular? She's the de facto lead, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, but we're always sort of navigating as viewers the ambiguity between her as a as a victim constantly being accused and under suspicion by her family which is very kind of 
strange and also estranging of her. You can almost feel her isolation increasing as the film progresses. Mm. But at the same time, there's always these little hints and breadcrumbs of at her being the titular witch. Mm. Mm. What did you think kind of about how... Did you think she was a titular witch? Do you think that's what it, the film was leading us to believe? Well, I think it's both, really. Yeah, I, I love that ambiguity. And I was when I was watching it, I was trying to work out whether she ever actually does deny that she is a witch because there's a really brilliant opaqueness to her um, character and to Anya's performance where, you know, not only does she not deny it, but there's that brilliant scene where very early on in the film where her sister Mercy, you know, accuses her and instead of denying it she actually takes that on and kind of calls her bluff and and starts saying you know I am I am the witch and she lists all the things that witches do which is sort of quite useful you know for a modern audience to, to know what it is that they feel they're dealing with mercy come out I be not mercy I be the witch of the wood and I have come to steal you hear me stick a fly in through the trees I be a washing father's clothes like a slave, and thou art playing idle. Because mother hates you. Spoilt child. Tell mother you have left the farm alone. Black Philip says I can do what I like. Devil take your Black Philip. Sure thought I can't leave the yard. I could go to the brook before you let the witch take Sam. Quiet thee. It were a wolf stole Sam. A witch. I've seen her in her riding cloak about the wood. Father showed me the tracks. It was a witch. Aye. It was a witch, Mercy. You speak aright. Thomason! It was I. Liar. Twas I what stole him. I be the witch of the wood. Liar. Liar. I am. Listen not to a Mercy. I am that very witch. When I sleep, my spirit slips away from my body and dances naked with the devil. That's how I signed his book. No. He bade me bring him an unbaptized babe. So I stole Sam and I gave him to my master. And I'll make any man or thing else vanish I like. No. Aye. And I'll vanish thee too if thou displeaseth me. So that there's a brilliant way in which it kind of creates an irony and an ambiguity where she's saying she is a witch. Meanwhile, we've seen the real witch in the woods, but that's not to say that she isn't also a witch. And what are the the things that happen that lead the family to believe that there's witches at play here. So often it feels to me in that era, the anxiety surrounding the possibility of a witch being present was often connected anxieties about children and motherhood. Um, and, you know, baby Samuel going missing feels like the kind of catalyst for that. Um, and then, you know, the sequence of crop failure and, um, kind of leading right the way up to the children not being able to recite the Lord's Prayer which was considered to be a massive sign that um, witchcraft was at work because they, I think it was witches were prevented from saying forgive me my trespasses or something like that I think that's the reason why they felt that um, that would be a good test other than the swimming test during Caleb's possession they start the family try and kind of rally around him and recite the Lord's Prayer and uh, the twins aren't able to um, and that feels like a kind of key turning point as well so yeah there are all these kind of um, things dotted throughout the film that historically speaking were typical of a kind of build up to an accusation of witchcraft um, whether that was you know animals being found dead so that you know the dog mm -hmm. is found dead in the in the woods children going missing or children dying um, sickness disease Caleb's possession Caleb's death 
all the all those kinds of things I think contribute to a feeling that there's a witch in their midst and that Thomason as a kind of figure of burgeoning womanhood is going to take the fall for that. If we can dig into a little bit about the the accusations that go flying about and kind of how this family becomes the perfect victims in a way because mm. they have deliberately isolated themselves from the rest of their community. Mm. What is the dynamic between them and how does it grow more and more fragile as they start being more and more vulnerable to the possibility of there being witches in the woods or even amongst them? Certainly when we see them at the beginning of the film, they really represent a unit. You know, they're all leaving together. There's this wonderful shot of them departing from the colony and they're kind of all on the back of the wagon together and then they start singing and there's a real um, tightly knit uh, feeling to them as a family that they, they come together and they leave together. And over the course of the film, it feels like it's about family breakdown and it's about the kind of seeds that get sown that start to create discord between the different people, um, you know, between Thomason and her mother, between the mother and the father, between Caleb and Thomason, between Thomason and the twins. And the build-up of worries about witchcraft feel like they go hand-in-hand hand with anxieties about failure in the family and perversion in the family. And, and that also feels like a metaphor for the failure of religion and the failure of God. How do you think Thomason's sexuality and kind of coming of age-ness, just going to make that up, um, how do you think her coming of age and her quite tense relationship with her mother plays into building up kind of A, that internal discord, but particularly that disconnect between the women in the family mm. and the isolation of Thomason from everyone else in that family? Because... The rejection that I kind of I sense her feeling increasingly from her mother in particular mm. is so isolating and that in a way is sort of creating the perfect potential witch or mm, potential motivation. victim yeah. Yeah, within her because, yeah. you know, they've extracted themselves from the colony, from their community because of Thomason's father's own opinions or um, position on religion and then even within the isolated family unit all of these cracks start forming but particularly all the fingers seem to be constantly pointing at Thomason mm. and her mother seems to be quite antagonistic towards her. There's possibly an element of which in many ways is, is a more patriarchal structure of you know a son becoming a man and that presenting a you know, in the kind of animal kingdom sense, presenting a threat to the male figure. And in this sense, it's m more matriarchal. I think it's interesting how Thomason's, just going back to what you were saying about sexuality, mm -hmm. in that she is developing into a woman, but any sexuality that the film sort of sees in her is entirely imposed upon her. She doesn't reveal any hints or... Uh, tendency towards any kind of sexual feeling as far as we know it's entirely from Caleb who is becoming aware of you know the fact that she has breasts the fact that yeah and there's there's that moment with her mother where uh, she says she has begat the sign of her womanhood and you know so there's a kind of anxiety about what nascent sexuality signifies but it isn't coming from Thomas and herself it's entirely imposed which when you think about where the story goes in terms of Thomason 
if we are to believe that she she isn't a witch for the whole kind of main main body of the film and is only pushed into doing that because of the way that she's been alienated then actually it becomes quite a feminist reclaiming of a narrative mm-hmm. um, of imposed sexuality what do you think what is your reading do you think that thomason has been a witch throughout the film or that she's pushed into it in the end i think she's pushed into it i feel that particularly in the way that in the final act of the film and the violence that starts to take hold with the mother in particular there's that amazing kind of heartbreaking sequence where the mother um sort of attacks her and she's so crazy with grief and um loss she accuses thompson of all kinds of things starts wrestling her to the floor starts strangling her where are they no, not what I saw. Where are they? I did nothing. She came from the sky. Devil. You have their blood upon thy hands. It is you. It is you. I'm your daughter. The devil is in thee, and I've had thee. You are smeared of his sin. You reek of evil. You have made a covenant with brother. You bewitched thy brother. Proud slut. Did you not think I saw? I swore to show to him. Bewitching his eyes any harm. And that his father next. <laughs> you took them from me. And Thompson is left with no choice in many ways. So it doesn't feel like that kind of cold-blooded, premeditated reveal of here I am I've always been the witch Um, and in the aftermath you know she takes off her bloody dress and she sits there and she's very alone and then black Philip or rather you know the devil visits her and offers her a deal in essence Mm -hmm. but that's because she's so alone and because of everything she's lost it doesn't it doesn't feel Machiavellian in that in that kind of way Um, so I think she's only a witch after I think she's a witch as a product of alienation and isolation and and also as a product of anger and I think it's interesting to look at the ways in which anger underpins a lot of Thomason's character anger as a righteous feeling because she has been blamed for the silver cup which actually her father sold because she's been blamed for Jonas and Mercy's you know bickering because she's blamed for Caleb Caleb's um, disappearance She's blamed for Samuel's disappearance. She's blamed for the goats not being bedded down. She's blamed for absolutely everything. Mm. And it feels like the anger that starts to build is something that we can all connect to when, we've, when we feel that you know, we've been wronged. But it's interesting that her, that anger doesn't really express itself aside from that one scene with Mercy where she throws back that accusation, doesn't it? It always feels defensive as opposed to aggressive true although there is that scene where she's talking to her father and he's sort of he encourages her to confess he says look i know that things have been really tough if if you have taken some kind of pact then tell me and she kind of throws it back at him and says how can you ask me that when like you're the one who's been lying you're the Mm. one who's so it 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 does feel like there's, there's a little bit of an attack there um and, and she's kind of, she uses that as a way of once again evading, confirming or denying whether she is. But she definitely, she's using anger 
as a way of justifying her innocence and to share the blame a little bit, you know, for what is ultimately a, you know, if the family is a kind of microcosm of com for community or, or, you know, religious structures, it's not, she, she doesn't feel that she's solely to blame. And I think the whole nature of witch trials and, and structures surrounding that kind of justice is that it's about blaming one thing rather than admitting that as a society um, things are becoming more structuralist or things are becoming more um, alien. And, you know, I think that connects so brilliantly to the essential anxiety at the heart of New England at that time, which was that they embarked and they're, you know, across the sea, they're in a lawless place, they're having to create structures that don't exist there yet. And I think that connects really amazingly into the film in terms of a family who've not only left England, but also left what little safety there was in the structure of this colony and community. And they've embarked into the wilderness and one of the really powerful things about the film for me has always been the way that it sort of sits between very period accurate historical fiction mm. and a supernatural horror film with about witches. Mm. Robert Eggers is notorious for being, well, he himself has said that he is very, very research heavy and delves really deep into history and uh, takes a lot of inspiration, detail, and even dialogue. Yeah, lifted straight from straight accounts. From, exactly, yeah. straight from diaries and accounts from the era. And, you know, one of the, the notable films, that at least I remember even in around the time of its festival run in LFF in 2015, was that it was this, it was this period uh, dialogue that for some people was a big turn off and mm. was difficult to engage with. But the really roundabout question I'm trying to get to at here is kind of how do you think it balances the its dual identity as both a traditional horror film in some senses, really well crafted one, and a very heavy, uh, heavily researched period piece that taps into all of the all of that kind of anxiety and alienation and kind of difficulty and you know inherent sexism and the complications that come with setting up new rules and a new society and new structures i think um what's so successful about the film and i think what allowed it to play so widely in what would have otherwise potentially been quite a niche art house film I mean obviously relatively speaking it's mm -hmm. still it's still not you know it's still that I definitely found watching the film and, and hearing the language it is alienating for the first couple of minutes and I think it, it could be quite hard to connect to but actually because they are taking the, the the film takes the idea of the witch as absolutely real and it is rather than a horror film where you know people the kind of people that we recognize end up in a house and there are strange things happening and and they are us represented which is that we as modern people don't necessarily believe in that the horror comes from oh my god what's in this house what's what's behind that door whatever mm -hmm. whereas this it takes it as real it feels like the language allows us to access that time and the specifics of that era 
um, in a way that can allow it to be become authentic and yet remain a horror film that speaks to anxieties today about female power and family breakdown and all those kinds of things. And I think actually it's the language and, and it's the attention to detail that makes it feel real and lived in and like we're experiencing it rather than looking at it in a museum. You know, it's not a kind of bonnets and corsets version of history. It's, it's about the very narrow, very physical world of the 17th century and the challenges of living in it. And, um, and that feels like it works with the horror elements rather than against it. How do you think it taps into more contemporary questions around female power in particular? Because one of the one of the whole reasons why we're doing this <laughs> is because I think that the witch, as we've seen her in horror fiction and cinema and television, kind of in, in pop culture in general, is one of the very few iconic images that of power that are more often than not gendered female mm. so it's one of the very few both villainous or otherwise images of powerful women that we have that are not just women taking on male traits mm, i think that is the key thing and that's why it feels like the witch is, has endured as this kind of icon of literature history cinema because exactly as you say rather than aping male characteristics in order to feel powerful as a woman it's about using your femininity using your sexuality using your softness um which is there's that amazing scene in the film where caleb approaches the witch's hut and she appears to him as you know incredibly beautiful soft voluptuous young woman and then as she kisses him the hand appears mm -hmm. as the kind of gnarled old woman's hand yeah. it's so scary and disturbing um but I think it's it's that kind of um, using sexuality and using femininity um, for one's own means, which feels, at least for that era, kind of one of the only ways that a woman could have power, um, unless they were a mother, because there was there was such a kind of binary, you know, you were either a whore or you were a wife. How do you think the film also kind of taps into certain fairy tale esque depictions of witches, particularly that scene yeah. that you referenced with Caleb, is you know, I mentioned before the Little Red Riding Hood because of her red hood. It's straight out of that, isn't but it? But it's a gingerbread house. You know, yeah. she's luring in the kid, but yeah. also with sort of overtly, you know, like you said, very overtly sexualized, voluptuous young woman mm. who's luring him in and goes in for the kiss. And let's just preface it by saying Caleb was probably, what, 13? Something if that, like that? Yeah, it's a really, tr it's quite troubling as a yeah. scene. But kind of, how do you think the witch also takes from our you know collective imagination of the witch as we imagine her from fairy tales yeah I mean I think it definitely um that is the scene that feels like it departs it's the one scene that feels that it becomes fantastical as opposed to realistic exactly it? it suddenly feels like we are in a more fantastical world um you know we're in a Grimm's fairy tales type world um but I think what's great is that it it takes, again, takes that as being um, both real, but also it's quite a dreamlike sequence where because we already know that this isn't the real version of the witch, we know that her true form is that she's this incredibly disturbing old woman. It takes on 
the semblance of a dream, a waking nightmare. And Caleb certainly, you know, he's kind of lost in the woods. It feels Hansel and Gretel. It feels um, like it's drawing upon all those structures. Um, and his performance as well is, it, it's almost like he's under her spell. So I think it, it allows that scene to, f- to feel a bit different to the rest of the film, which is otherwise very, very grounded and, and naturalistic. Mm. Yeah, and, and th- I mean, we said this already, but the use of the red cloak in a film that's otherwise so kind of neutral palette, um, you know, natural colours and things like that feels lurid. It's a lurid splash of colour that feels transgressive and exciting. And moving on to the final act of the film mm. which is where you know the shit hits the a lot of shit fan. goes down <laughs> <laughs> shit hits the fan i love in the that forest. though when, when things <laughs> when you just feel like all these little like grenades have been established and then they all just start to explode it's my f- act three is just um and i think in any horror film is just so satisfying so i was gonna ask you kind of did you feel like it was too much did you feel like it was over the top or did you think that it, it had led us to that point so gently? And then, like you say, the grenades just started exploding all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, what, what did you make of the of the final act where so much gore, but also so much gore happens, but then the supernatural elements really reveal themselves? Mm. I, I actually find it quite... I don't think it goes too far in at all and I think what's so good about that is it still finds those moments I love that moment um when the twins and Thomason have to spend a night alone together and there's just quite a quiet moment where they're just staring at each other across the space and it's actually just quite mundane and quite um god we have to spend a night together and we're all a bit scared and cold and similarly you know after the violence with the parents it then again brings it down in terms of um pace and just allows her to sit there alone and kind of mourn the violence that has happened so I think it doesn't it does become frantic but it it keeps um a brilliant kind of structured pace to it where there's moments of quietness and moments of extreme violence and activity um yeah and I, and, I, and I think also the gore because it's been such a slow build feels needed because in many ways it's not a traditional horror film in the sense that there are things that that jump, but it's not it's not as simple as who's behind you. You know, it's it's far more kind of psychological. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we we're really craving those kinds of moments that splash. I mean, quite literally um, on the screen. Kind of one of the biggest reveals in that finale as well is obviously Black Phillip, mm. who is the, the family goat, mm. one of the family goats, Mm-mm. who, um, if I'm not mistaken, totally eviscerates the patriarch of the family, mm. which also then causes Catherine, the mother, to spiral and attack Thomason. But then Black Phillip is revealed to be Satan. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is you know at a certain point I think in the early modern period Satan became you know sort of like God was was a was a more had had previously been a more um, conceptual idea um, wasn't necessarily necessarily personified in the way that he then became Um, and I think in the sort of early modern period 
Satan became a more physicalized uh, figure, you know, where the stereotype is that he appears as a as a ram, but also as a um, as a man with, you know, dark features and mm-hmm. um, and suddenly he has a book that you can sign and he has familiars and he has um, a whole outlet that's physical mm. and whereas God actually kind of remains as an idea personified loosely as, as he in an old man with a stick but mm. um, Satan becomes way more physical and I think that ties into all the physical um, kind of accompaniments that go with witchcraft whether that's familiars or broomsticks or hats or potions or mashing up babies or all that kind of all those things that we associate with witchcraft where it's not as simple as the figure of a person mm-hmm. wrecking, wreaking havoc. It's um, it's all of the decorations surrounding that. Yeah, it's um, all the different artifacts and elements exactly. that make up a witch's world. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting as well how that ties into fears about Catholicism at that time. Um, you know, post-Reformation, um, the rise of Puritanism was sort of felt so linked to anxieties about Catholicism muddying your relationship with God, your essential relationship with God, which is that it's about you, God, and this one book, which which has everything you need in it. And, you know, signs and symbols and saints and, um, you know, bread and wine and all that kind of, all, the, all those things that signify all those objects and items that can signify your relationship with God were kind of removed and it wasn't about you know you weren't allowed to cross yourself anymore and certain things became frowned upon with the break from Rome and I think it's interesting how the anxieties about witchcraft feel really um, parallel to anxieties about Catholicism and the stripping away of all that kind of stuff and so witchcraft and the devil is reinstates all those things that people feared you know, signs and symbols and all that kind of stuff. And that encounter, the that last, really first encounter that Thomason has with Black Philip, aka Satan, kind of condenses a lot of those initiation processes that we're used to seeing witches. And it's it's quite interesting we're watching the film now because I now keep thinking of the chilling adventures of Sabrina and how that's really made it quite you know, adapted this iconography of the witch, the really dark association with Satan, with the goat or the ram as a kind of, and the mixture of the goat and the man as a figure Mm. into, you know, this Riverdale-esque teen universe. Mm. But I, I couldn't help but think of it. But at the same time, you know, you have in this very condensed about five minutes, or even... Of the, of the of the ending of the film, this encounter with Black Philip, where he makes the offer to her, and transforms himself from a black goat into a man with dark features, like mm, you were talking before, and mm. offers her to sign the book. It's essentially although it's amazing how ambiguously he's seen. We only really yeah. sort of see the outline of his footsteps and the outline of his, I think, hat. Yeah. It's very like if you blink you'll miss it yeah you know? it's so shrouded mm. in the dark and mystery it mm. just hints at it and that voice it's yeah. like honey and yeah it's yeah very... and even the things that he offers her he asks her if he if she wants to live deliciously mm, mm. it's kind of amazingly yeah. seductive and, and also, it's all about excess as well yeah and she she's already naked by this point mm. you know so all of those 
all of those stigmas and paranoias about a young woman's sexuality that, like, as you said, is really thrust upon her. She's not Mm. really doing anything or presenting any sort of invitation to anyone. Suddenly she's finding herself in a naked form, completely vulnerable, completely alone, and being offered this pact. Like Philip. I conjure thee to speak to me. Speak as that to speak to Jonas and Mercy. Dost thou understand my English tongue? Answer me. Thou give. Wouldst thou like the taste of butter? A pretty dress? Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Yes. I mean, you'd say yes, wouldn't you? I would. One hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Especially if somebody offers me to live deliciously. <laughs> I think we all like a bit of that. Yeah. But it's it's so condensed and sudden and at the same time kind of shrouded in in shadows mm. and but at the same time in this sort of sexually charged mysticism in a way. Yeah, particularly given that she hasn't had any sexual experiences yeah. yet. Um it feels sudden at while at the same time, when you rewatch it, you're going to see all the signs leading up to it. Yeah, it does feel sudden. And I think it, I think that's because it maybe literalizes what has um, felt ambiguous up until that point. Mm. Obviously, the witch in the wood does exist, but the idea that Thomason is or isn't a witch has always remained ambiguous. And then suddenly her being visited by a, an actual person who offers her, you know, this, this deal with the devil um, feels not so much a a right like a left turn but it it I think it is unexpected and it's certainly the bit that people seem the most divided over mm. you know when in, in talking about the film the ending seems to divide a lot of people why do you think that is I think it's because it seems to follow a crucible-esque format for the family and for Thomason where we want to believe that she's innocent she seems innocent it's scary to believe that we can, because of a kind of mob mentality, vilify an innocent person and then that can create such a violent mess. And it's it's a structure that we're familiar with. And I think it's quite, we have a lot of empathy for that kind of person. Um, so I think when she then actually is evil and, and does say yes to the devil, I think it becomes harder to interpret. I was gonna say, do you think the fact that she accepts the devil's deal to become a witch, you know, join the club officially. Mm. Do you think that reduces her empathy for Thomason? Yeah, well, I think that sort of goes against what I was actually saying earlier, which I do believe, which is that she only does that once she's been, you know, um, abused and alienated. Um, So that feels like something that we can get on board with. I suppose what I mean is I, I remember when I watched it and when she did kind of raise up 
you know, she she stripped off and she, and there were all these naked women, you know, prancing around and it felt like a kind of... The Witcher Summer. Yeah, exactly. And it felt like it it was um, that on speed. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, and I think what had otherwise been a fairly kind of um, cloaked in darkness, like um, brief glimpses of suddenly became a fully fledged devil circle. So I think it it definitely stretches belief, I guess, a bit more. Um, but I do think that by that point, it is believable. But yeah, it's certainly the more fantastical, one of the more fantastical moments in the film that I think some people weren't sure about. And what do you think about kind of the final shot of The Witcher's Sabbath? So it's it's kind of, you know, they're dancing around a bonfire. They're all naked. There's at least like eight, nine women dancing around chanting. The music gets really intense at that point. There's no sign of Black Philip or Satan. And Thomaston is sort of walking towards them. and doesn't quite join them, but they sort of start levitating. And it, the music kind of reaches a, a peak, a crescendo at that point. And she... She starts top, levitating as well. Yeah, yeah, and she sort of levitates above all of them, we're led to believe, just kind of judging by how far, how near the top of the trees she is. But it's that image is a very, very iconic, traditional one. You know, we've mm. seen this from the earliest possible animations and kind of silent films to kind of very literal or um, mocking interpretations of the Witcher Sabbath. And it's kind of the one image that we always come back to of kind of this group of naked women celebrating. Communing together. Or communing together uh, or, you know, paying homage to the devil or whatnot and kind of the naked female form as well Mm. and the fire and the darkness of the woods. Like all of this is so recurrent. Do you think that sort of fits is it a fitting ending or is it something that then is there a confirmation of the supernatural that kind of takes it takes the whole film to a totally different plane it does just go one step further doesn't it and i think that um with the climactic scenes with her family there's something very feminist i suppose about what happens and with the images of kind of women dancing around and worshipping Satan, there is something that does feel like maybe a slight regression there to worshipping a male figure and sexuality being kind of commodity that allows you to join a group. So I think, but then on the other hand, we don't see the devil. So actually, is there something really empowering about seeing Mm. all these women just in their natural state, kind of letting loose and not being restricted. You know, we see earlier on, um, I think a few minutes before she takes off her kind of corset and she's only in her shift and then she gets naked in completely. So actually for that era, is there something really, really feminist about the ending? So yeah, it's... it's I and think, it's the one moment where we see Thomason smile. Yeah, and she's laughing and she's... Yeah. And there's, there's a complete joy and amazement that she's levitating, um, which feels in an otherwise very bleak film that has seen her go through every single other emotion is a real revelation, I think. Thinking back on the film and rewatching it, mm. at any point, do you think that she was always the target, the ultimate target? Like she was being groomed do you by mean Black Philip okay. in order to add her into the witch's coven? I don't know about grooming, but I do think that 
historically figures who were accused of witchcraft were always isolated from their from their community in some way either they were unmarried or they were unmarried because of widowhood and so I think the children are the children and they're not yet of marrying age but Thomason is is approaching that age where she's 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 unmarried but she is of marriageable age and I think that um she feels like a natural fit for Black Philip to pursue but I do feel that it's a sort of tragedy in that it, it it happens and as a result he swoops in rather than it being something that was intended throughout um but that's just my interpretation I think yeah there's definitely a version of things where it's a, it's a story about I mean this is one of the powers of the film is and it's the fact that it's so ambiguous that it totally. lends itself to so many different interpretations and it's interesting that even Eggers himself has talked about the fact that this film tapped into this moment in culture in general where the witch was a figure that was being resurrected mm. in many different forms you know from witch house music to um politicians you know, politicians <laughs> to other kind of films that came in quick succession in the in the in that same year or the year following of kind of thinking about the figure of the witch and kind of taking her on and reclaiming her and using her in different variations and especially on social media. But, and how do you think kind of to start wrapping up the film, film fits into the wider cinematic canon of witches on screen? I think that um, it returned the idea of witches to a far more primal, you know, certainly in more American, I mean, I know it's American film, but in the 90s and 80s, you know, we've kind of got the more kind of sassy witch. You know, she's always attractive. She's always, um, you know, she doesn't always have her shit together, but there's a sense in which witchcraft is a cool, useful thing um, rather than being a source of terror and um, disgusting kind of physicality, which I think this harks back to and it's it's far more um interested in the history of why we're afraid of witches rather than how witches can be a symbol of kind of modern you know almost like sex in the city-esque women thank you so much for your time and for visiting the film with this me. has been great i'm a massive fan of this film I can tell. Oh, it's great. Um, also, I absolutely love the fact that this was your first horror film. Yeah. What a perfect bookend. Yeah, I'm I'm having to go back and do a lot of um, homework into the rest of horror. <laughs> Where can people find more of your work? So I'm on the various social media thingies. I'm on Twitter, which is, I think my um, handle is at Chloe H. Wicks. And that's it for another episode of the Final Girls podcast. Please do rate, subscribe, and share your favorite Black Phillip moments with us on social media. You can find out more about what we do on thefinalgirls.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook on thefinalgirls.uk. You can also find out more about Chloe's work on Twitter at Chloe H. Wicks, and I am on Annabee Demented. 